You think I got enough time? Or I should go. All right. I got to play this, though. Boy. I'm at a casino in Las Vegas, but I can't tell you exactly which one. And I'm playing a table game, but I can't tell you what it's called. I've been sworn to secrecy by my partner, who is sitting next to me while we play. Oh, look at that. Oh, no. A6. She's teaching me how to play this unusual game, a game that gamblers call a carnival game, a table game in the pit that isn't blackjack or any of the other classic casino table games. But she's doing much more than teaching me the rules. Look at that, full house. Full house. Full house. Make money. What's she throwing for? If I play trips, how much would I make? Eight times? I'm new. I'm new. Everyone at the table is laughing at me like I'm a sucker. Because even though I won a couple of hundred dollars, I could have won much, much more if I had made some kind of special bonus bet on the table. A bet my partner assures me is one of the worst wagers in the casino. Completely negative EV. Expected value. That's because she's a professional gambler. And the rest of the players at this table are a bunch of straight up and down chumps. What they don't know is that we don't need to throw money away on some goofy bonus bet. Because, unlike them, we're playing with positive EV. We actually have an edge over the casino. Because the woman sitting next to me telling me how to play my hand is Gina Fiore. And she's what gamblers refer to as sharp, meaning she only gambles when the odds are tilted in her favor. And she accomplishes this in many ways, through brilliant card sense, knowledge of odds, and mastery of all manner of games of chance. But in this particular case, her edge over the house is quite simple. She can see the dealer's face-down cards. This is a podcast about the men and women who live by their wits and wagers. People who bet big on themselves and won. Over the next six episodes, you will meet a road-hustling pool shark, a former bookie who moves the lines with his bets, a punk rock horse handicapper, a poker player straight out of a fairy tale, the king of New York City's underground gin rummy games, and Gina Fiore, a single mom who made millions beating casinos around the world at their own games. From the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Gamblers is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Also, there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 
21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. To see if I can get it if I'm lower. We're about like seven feet from the table. Are you able to see it from here? Yeah, I can see something. And another thing I'll do is just I'll... I'll mess with my shoe. Like when she deals the card out, if I need to know if I can get it when I'm lower, I'll just, you know, scratch my ankle. And if I can't get it, I'm just gonna I'm gonna move on to the next one. I might remember her name and be like, okay, you know, check her when the seat opens. Like, see that? That's either a, a seven or an eight. I'm not sure. That's enough information though. I can play my hand knowing the dealer has a seven or the dealer has an eight. I'm not sure. Gina and I are standing about seven feet away from the table where the cards are being dealt. I can't see anything but the backs of cards. It's like she has x-ray vision. What is it you're, looking, you're seeing? Just a pit pattern. Just a pit pattern. Sometimes you get the... Like on the side of the card, you see the, like, the shape of the Right. Sometimes you see the side. Like, sometimes you see the side and it's completely white, so you know it's like an ace, deuce, or three. Sometimes you see the side and you just see, like, you know, three pips. And you're like, okay, it's a six, or it's a seven, or it's an eight. And sometimes you're seeing the top half. So now you see two pips up top, and you're like, okay, it's a four through ten. Or you see one, and you're like, oh, it's a two or a three. So in your, in your brain, it works. See, like, that, that's a four. So your brain just, it works quicker. You don't have to have great eyesight. Your brain needs to recognize it and think about, you know, the last 20 years of your life. What, what could that possibly be? And then, <laughs> and then go to the strategy. Okay, it's this or that. What do I do? It's like a magic trick. You should be a magician. Yeah. It's a lot more than a magic trick. Gina catches a glimpse of the dealer's whole card as they deal it face down on the table. But just having that information on its own wouldn't be enough for you or me to make a fortune at these games. Gina plays with perfect strategy. She understands the odds, the probabilities, how much to bet and when, and how to know when the casino is wise to her move. She's made her living entirely from gambling for most of the last 20 years. She's made millions at casinos all over the world. She sat down and gambled with the famous and the infamous alike. She's played blackjack and poker on television, had a documentary made about her, and even had a gambling-related court case of hers go all the way to the Supreme Court. In the world of gamblers, Gina Fiore is a big deal. So much so that a couple of days after we sat in that Las Vegas casino, she was invited to attend the Blackjack Ball, an exclusive and secret gathering of some of the world's top gamblers. It's so rarefied an occasion, the location and invite list is a secret. But Gina's presence is well-deserved. And her path to get there has been a wild one. One that started, naturally, in Las Vegas. In the 1990s, Las Vegas was booming like no other city in America. Its population nearly doubled through the decade, with scores of people like Gina's family moving there in search of good jobs and the promise of a new and better life. Gina's mother got a job dealing blackjack at the horseshoe and her father got a job in food and beverage. They moved to Green Valley, a wealthy suburb of Las Vegas. And I didn't fit in because we weren't rich. Like we rented our house and like the girls that I made friends with like had big houses and like one father owned like a chemical company, one father was a pilot and I did not fit in at all. And uh, that was my high school experience. And then by the end of it, 
I almost didn't graduate because I just never went. Like, I just didn't get up in the morning. I missed so many classes. And then I did graduate. I didn't walk. I was just done with it. I was just like, did a lot of drugs, hung out in bars, went to the clubs. I did nothing. I was like on the path to just being like a complete loser. Did you move out of your parents' house or were you still there? Yeah, no, I did like soon after. And I like was doing pickup jobs. Like I would, like I was standing outside of Harrah's trying to get people to come in and watch a pilot for CBS. Like that was one of my jobs. And however many people you got, you got paid for it. And I would do like convention work. Like I do modeling work and you do a, a week of a convention, like once a month or whatever. And they'd pay you like 50 bucks an hour. So that would cover me for the entire month. And then I had like the gigs, like at bars and stuff like that. I was in a, I was in a sting video and they turned it into a Jaguar commercial. So I was getting residual checks from that. Like I'd get a check every now and then for like $2,000. And I'm like, awesome. And that would like tide me over. How did you find this kind of work? I just hustled. Eventually, Gina's mom encouraged her to use that hustle to get a job in the casinos, where her parents were both making what they considered to be a killing. My mom was in there like, this is a great job. You make 40K a year. You get a break every hour. She was at the, she went golden nugget to Venetian. And then she quit dealing. But um, she was like, you can be a dealer. Like, they thought that was a good, like, life. And I didn't have anything else going on. And it was like 40K a year. Sure, I could do that. So I went to this little casino by Hoover Dam, the Hacienda, I think. It's a little casino. It was nice. Like, it was just remodeled or whatever. And I was like, can I have a job? (laughs) And it sucked. I hated it. I hated it so much. Vegas was a company town. And it was difficult to navigate the ins and outs of the casino business. There were politics involved in what games you could deal, what shift you could work, or how much money you could make. Gina was working three days a week and sharing her tips. It was a grind, and it wasn't the life she was looking for. But then she heard they were opening up casinos in California. And more importantly, she heard the dealers got to keep their own tips. I got my car, packed my car up, had my resume. I went to Palm Springs. I walked in and I just happened to be like an hour early for a job fair and I didn't know it. I just walked in, it was raining, it was miserable. And I asked this guy like, where could I apply? Like, where's human resources? And he's like, let me see your resume. So he looks at this little like homemade resume and he like asked me a question or two. He's like, okay, you can have the job. And he was like the casino manager. It was just lucky. It was lucky that I walked in and that I met him. Such a nice guy and so he gave me the job. And then I moved down there and I was making like $2,000 a week. The Agua Caliente Casino in Palm Springs was the second Las Vegas-style casino to open in California, after voters passed a law allowing casinos on tribal lands. The casino was an immediate hit, with thousands of gamblers arriving every day creating traffic jams. The dealers made so much money from tips, they'd have security escort them to their cars. Gina was earning more than double what she made in Las Vegas. But she noticed that someone else was making even more than she was. The players. So when my mom worked at the Horseshoe and I was in high school, she was like, Gina, these people get kicked out of the casino all the time for card counting. I think you'd be good at it. And I'm like 16 (laughs) because like I wasn't good in school, but I'm smart. I'm like, I'm not a genius, but I'm smart. She's like, you'd be good at this. I was like, okay. And then years later, I'm dealing now. And so I'm like, kind of, I'm learning basic strategy because I see people win and then you just wonder, you just wonder about it. So I go online and I start like looking into card counting. I started out like with Martingale. The Martingale system is a betting strategy where players double their bets every time they lose to try to get back to even. A sucker play against the house edge. It sounds logical, 
but a string of losses can be financially devastating. Card counting, however, is a method that tilts the odds in blackjack in the player's favor. It actually works, which is why card counters make money and why casinos hate card counters. Gina read the book Blackjack for Blood by Bryce Carlson and lurked on legendary card counter Stanford Wong's internet forum, bj21.com. She knew that the players who were winning at her tables were more than just lucky. And she was right. But it didn't feel like something she could just up and do herself. Then one day she walked into work and one of her fellow dealers, a guy named Marlon, was putting in his two weeks notice. She asked him why he was quitting. And he said, I'm going to play poker and count cards in Laughlin. That's exactly what he said. And it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, he's going to count cards for a living? That's a thing? And it was immediately like, well, if Marlon can do it, I can do it. And that was it. I was done. I was like, I can do this. So I did it. How did she do it? Let's just say she figured out how to get Agua Caliente to subsidize her education. I counted while I was dealing, and it was practice every night, and I just counted and counted and counted. I'm not saying it's a hard count because it's not. I still do it. It's reflexive. But when you start counting, everyone's like, just do high-low. It's just like two plus one, minus one, plus one, minus one. And I'm over here with like plus two, minus one, side count of aces, and then add this. And, you know, I'm like really into it. I want the best count. In case you thought that counting cards meant literally counting every card that comes out of the deck, maybe this all sounds a bit confusing. And it isn't exactly simple. But the basics of counting cards in blackjack aren't all that difficult to explain. So you give each card that comes out a value. You either say it's plus one or minus one. To your, you start with zero, just usually. So if like four big cards come out, big cards are good for the player. So if four tens come out, each one is minus one. So now your count is negative four, right? Minus one, minus one. And so just in general, when your count goes very positive, you want to put your money out. You want to bet. So you can do this with a very simple count, plus one, minus one. You know, a a four comes out, plus one. A 10 comes out, minus one. And you just keep track. But for Gina, simple wasn't enough. She knew if she could keep track of even more information in her head, she could gain an even bigger edge and make even more money. So I had like... The tens were like minus two, and the nines were minus one, and the fours were plus two. Like I just added a little bit extra, and the aces were were zero because I had an extra count on the side how many aces came out. So I'm like three aces, it's minus 10 or whatever. So I would just put these things together in my head. And I did that because I wanted like the best bang for my buck. If I could get like a fraction of a percent better of an edge counting, like I wanted it. Once Gina felt confident she could keep the count straight in her head, she decided to try it out at the tables, at another casino than the one she was working at, of course. And it didn't go so well. I remember going to Saboba Casino, and I was making a lot of money at my job, so I was able to bet, like, hundreds of dollars. Like, I didn't start out with, like, red chips, like, betting $15. Like, I was making money, and I, I knew what I was doing. Like, I could keep a count. And the shoe, it was a six-deck shoe, and it kept getting more positive. So I just kept betting more and more positive and betting more. And I got crushed. I lost a few thousand dollars. And that's a lot of money. Undaunted, Gina kept at it. She'd drive back and forth between Vegas and Palm Springs, splitting her time between dealing and playing. After six months, she was up $20,000. On some of those occasions, she'd meet up with other card counters she met on BJ21. One night, while she and a partner were playing the graveyard shift at Ellis Island Casino in Vegas, she could feel something was off. 
the foreman is like looking at me and I think he thinks I'm counting. So me and my partner, I was with a partner, like we were acting like we were together. So we're like, okay, we should leave because this guy's looking at us. So we're walking out the door of Ellis Island Casino and security says stop. And so you don't have to stop when security says stop there. You know, you so, so we walk into the parking lot and next thing I know, this guy's slamming me on the ground and he's got my arm behind my back. So I have my phone in my hand, in my other hand. And so I remember reading this on BJ21 and it, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but I called 911 and I was like, Ellis Island security is kidnapping me. And then my phone goes flying. So they put us in a back room and they like handcuff us to the wall. And I like can't believe this is happening because it's like from a movie. Like, really, is this really happening? And then we're just back there and they don't say anything to us. And so I'm like, wait till the cops come. You guys are going to be in trouble. Like, just wait. So the cops come like 20 minutes later and they come in the back room and they just railed on us. You guys were cheating. What do you think you were doing? You're going to jail. I was like, what is happening? Is this happening? Really? So they kept us back there for like four hours. They told us how poorly we do in jail. You guys are going to do so bad in jail and card counting is illegal and we're going to spread your names all over town and we're going to put you in Griffin because Griffin was like a book of cheaters, basically. The Griffin book is a death sentence for professional gamblers. Once you're in the Griffin book, your name, photo, aliases, associates, and any other info they can put together on you is shared with every casino who will then refuse to take your action. Compiled by the security company Griffin Investigations, it began as a list of known cheaters. But as card counting grew in popularity, the company added card counters to the book, even though card counting isn't cheating. And despite Gina's predicament that night, it isn't against the law. They're like, we're going to put your face in there and your name in there and you're going to jail. And we're just like, I felt like I was in another country. Like, I'm like, is this America? Is this happening, you know? And so we call Bob Narcessian. Bob Nersessian is a Las Vegas legend. He's a lawyer, and he built a successful legal practice by suing casinos who violate the rights of card counters and other successful gamblers playing by the casino's own rules. What happened to Gina and her partner was not uncommon in those days. But if they called Bob, Bob would take the casinos to court. And Bob would win. I win a lot of money for them. (laughs) My verdicts generally run, run six figures. Why then is it worth it for the casinos to treat gamblers in this way when... Um, it's not. They're not smart. You're um, somebody who, I guess, if Gina calls you in the middle of the night, she's in a pinch. Too many you're, people call me in the middle of the night. <laughs> I've been at my share of casinos while somebody's being held trying to talk the police in the casino into letting them go. So the casinos know you pretty well then in this town. Uh, some of them do. Some of them are surprised that there's anyone out there like me. Gina sued, and Ellis Island offered her a $40,000 settlement. She took it. But other clients of Bob's were going to trial and winning hundreds of thousands of dollars and exposing the casinos for how they treated winning players in the process. I was so young and I had no one to, like, guide me that I didn't realize what a slam dunk case we had. And I had this fear that we go to court and we lose and we have to pay their attorney fees. And like, I just didn't know. So we took the settlement and it's like a regret of mine that I just, how could we lose that case? Right. How could we possibly lose? And so, and we didn't prove any point, like no point was made. So we took like 40 K and we went on our way. And I think that was the first time I was backed off. Not long after her arrest, Gina found out that her father was sick 
So she took a leave of absence from Agua Caliente and returned to Vegas to be with her family. She spent the next three months shuffling back and forth from the hospital to the casinos. He was in the hospital in Vegas, so I'd spend all day with him, and I'd go out at night and work. And then I'd spend all day at the hospital, go out at night and work. And then he was in hospice, and I did the same thing, all day and then go work. And then, and then he passed away, and when he passed away, I was on a game at Palace Station, which sounds horrible, but I was obviously, like, escaping the situation. When she told me this, she seemed ashamed to admit she was in a casino at the moment he died. But she didn't need to be. I went through the same situation with my own dad. I took a leave of absence from my job, which back then was organizing unions, so that I could be with him and my mom while he was dealing with everything. And just like Gina, I spent a lot of those days gambling. I mean, there was a dog track just down the road from the Mayo Clinic. It's like they put it there on purpose. Before things got really rough, my dad would tag along with me too. But after he died, it pushed me to reevaluate my life. And I decided to take a chance on trying something that had been gnawing at me for a while. The same thing happened with Gina. So I went back to work and I just turned 24 and I'm just like, I don't want to be here. And I was making six figures and I told myself, if I make $50,000 a year gambling, like I'm okay. Like that's all I need. So I just quit my job, which was a big deal because nobody quits that job. Like you're keeping your own tips. You're not paying taxes on it. You're in Palm Springs. It's an easy job. I worked 30 hours a week and I was making a ton of money and I hated it. I hated it so much. So your friends thought you were crazy when you quit? The other people that worked there thought I was crazy. Like, And a couple of them asked me, and I said, I'm going to count cards. I didn't say whole card. I said, I'm going to count cards. And it was just like, what? huh, what are you doing? Gina figured if she took her shot and went broke, she could always go back to dealing blackjack at Agua Caliente. Before I quit, they said I could have my job back if I needed it. And it made me feel good. Like, if I fail, I could come back here. So then I got a letter from them saying, uh, you were backed off at another casino for... Uh, something play suspicious, something like that. You're no longer welcome on property. And like my heart sank. Like I was like, that's my, what I can fall back on. Without any backup plan, playing blackjack was suddenly an all-in proposition for Gina. She left Agua Caliente with $60,000 that she had saved up from playing and dealing. That was her entire nut. She couldn't treat blackjack as a lucrative hobby anymore. She couldn't dip her toe in the water to see how warm it was. Blackjack had to take care of her now. Whatever goals she had in life, whatever she wanted to do, to buy, to be, Blackjack was how she was going to get it. Somehow, right on time, Gina met someone who would give her a gift that would give her the extra edge she needed to make Blackjack into her career. A gift that would change her life forever. He showed her how to see the dealer's whole card. There was one guy online named El Burrow, and he was a card counter. And so he got turned on to hole carding and he got turned on to this like old school group of hole carters. And they were, they were known as like the Las Vegas hole card mafia. That was the little nickname. They would never have taken me out and shown me a hole card, but Elboro was like, he was a little bit older than me and younger than them. So he was like skating on the line of like these new card counters and these old school hole carters. So he showed me one game and that was it. And I like took off. Gina and I were in a dusty downtown casino on Fremont Street, far from the glitzy Las Vegas Strip. The blackjack games were strictly for the low rollers in this joint, but they were worth a lot more to her. 
This was the place where she first learned how to hole card. So this is where I saw my first hole card. Oh yeah? Yeah. So, oh, well, then this is a, such an appropriate place for us to play. Where was it? It was set up a little differently. Uh-huh. His car was always here. It was here. It was right there. There's a blackjack table right there where the props table is. And there, the machines were set up differently. So I was standing. I was really standing like 20 feet away. And it was center field, so I saw the card come off her deck. It's like 20 feet away, and I saw what it was, and I was like, oh my god, I saw a whole card. What was the game, blackjack? It was blackjack. And there was a guy sitting in the seat playing, and he turned around and looked at us, um, Alboro and me, the guy who was showing me the whole card. And he ended up being a whole card player. The guy in the seat, his name's Crazy Pete, and he's still around. I still talk to him. And yeah, he was playing the game, so we left like right away because we didn't want to sweat his game. Like that's not cool. Yeah. But I tell this story, and he knows he was the first person I ever saw. He's really cool. He's he's been around for a long time. It's like a million dollar moment for you. Well, I mean, it really. It Can you maybe explain why a whole card game or whole carding is more lucrative or better than and counting? counting? I mean, counting cards you might get like let's say let's say the house edge in a blackjack game is like one percent. Let's call it two percent just because it's easy. So you're playing blackjack, and every hand, every time you bet a hundred dollars, the casino should win two dollars because they have a two percent edge, right? So when you're counting cards, you flip that. And now maybe you get a 2% edge when, you know, when there are a lot of tens in the deck, you're counting little cards, big cards, little cards, big cards. So now when the the deck is favorable for you, you move your bet, you bet more. When it's not good, you bet less or you leave. It's very obvious what you're doing. Your bet is going up and down. You're going in and out of the deck. Varying the bet size is the thing that makes card counting such a tough job. It's how casinos can pick off card counters. One of the things about hole carding is that you keep your edge through the whole shoe. You don't need to vary your bet size, which means you're undetectable. You're invisible. You're just another gambler at the table. Hole carding, every single hand, you have information, you have an edge. And the edge is much higher than 2%. Like it could be 6%, it could be 10%. You can get 50% edge on a certain game if you have hole card information. And you don't have to move your bet, you just... You flat bet. You know, you're going to bet your 100 and your 100 and your 100. If you have a 5% edge, now you're making $5 a hand. Now you play 100 hands an hour, you know, there's your $500 an hour. Okay, so obviously if you can see the dealer's face-down card, you've got an advantage. You don't need to be a genius to understand that. But is it cheating? I mean, if security guards are handcuffing Gina to the wall just for keeping a count in her head of all the big cards in the deck... What are they going to do when they know she can see the whole card? you got to be careful with it because it's ancient. It was made probably in the 80s. But, yeah, you look down in there to that mirror, and the way this would be held open is one cigarette, typically, would be pulled out a little bit like this. And that holds it open just enough. And then, of course, this has to be held open. Oh, wow. Yeah. And now you can see. That's incredible. That's Jason England. He's a magician. And he's one of the world's foremost authorities on cheating at gambling. I'm standing in the library in his Las Vegas home watching him play blackjack at his own table. And he's showing me how someone could see the dealer's hole card using a shine, a tiny mirror 
In this case, a number of mirrors rigged into a pack of cigarettes so that the player can look down into a tiny window and perfectly see the corner of the dealer's card across the table. He's got all kinds of devices like this that he's collected from all over the world, each of them handmade by one professional cheater or another, and each of them a marvel of optical engineering. So what can we put on a blackjack table that would look like it belongs there and enable us to get this sort of worm's eye view of the top of the table using an angled mirror? Well, any of these devices will do it. But then he shows me how players are able to see a dealer's whole card without a shine by simply aiming their eyes in the right spot. And it's no less of a magic trick. Depending on the angle that the player can get from manipulating the height of their seat or manipulating the height of their head, maybe the way they tilted their head, the dealer may not be doing anything wrong necessarily. Mm-hmm. Now, the, these devices you were showing me, though, these mirrors, that you made the distinction that if a player utilized a device like this, a little mirror that they could use to see that same flash from across the table, that's illegal. illegal. Using the naked eye to see it is legal. Yes, that's exactly right. So if you get that information through the normal play of the game because of the dealer sloppiness, it's yours to use as you see fit. And you're not cheating. And you're not cheating, absolutely. Or are you breaking any laws? More after this. Add a little excitement to your sports-watching experience by betting on all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook this football season. There's a reason why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook. Their app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique, fun bet types like same-game parlay, and exclusive always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And if you win, they even get you your winnings safely in as little as 24 hours. Right now, FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game, and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back if you don't win your first bet. Seriously, there's no strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you'll get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. I'm from Arkansas, and naturally that means I'm a big hog fan. Usually that's great because I never have to lay any points. This weekend, though, they opened up as favorites against LSU for the first time in as long as I can remember. So I guess there's a first time for everything. I'm going to bet on the Razorbacks on FanDuel. And make sure to check out their same game parlays as well. If you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started and be sure to sign up with the promo code GAMBLERS so they know I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code GAMBLERS. 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, and Tennessee. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and in Illinois. Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. Whole carding opened up a whole new world to Gina. She set out across Las Vegas searching for dealers who gave up their whole cards so she could play them. And it wasn't easy. Maybe one in 300 dealers gave it up enough for her. So she knew that when she found one, in order to capitalize on that gold mine, she'd need to bet a lot of money. The problem was, betting a lot of money drew a lot of attention. 
especially when the person betting it was a hip young woman in her early 20s wearing boots and designer jeans. You have to weigh some things. You have to say, well, where am I? How good is the game? Am I like now I will bet by myself, but I can bet maybe if I put on a Rolex and like a nice bag, I can get away with betting a couple hundred. But if I look like a soccer mom, you know, I, I can't bet a hundred, a couple hundred dollars. I can't bet the money because I don't look like I should have money, right? Because she was a young, pretty woman. Yeah. That's Richard Munchkin, host of the Gambling with an Edge podcast, author of the book Gambling Wizards, and one of the most respected advantage gamblers in the world. I think before I ever met her, I saw her playing up in Reno one time. And I saw her playing from across the pit. And I went, oh my God, like this woman is a gold mine. Gina bought some new clothes, some expensive jewelry and handbags, and she tried to look the part of someone with money. But her Prada and Gucci getup only got her so far. She may not have looked sharp, but to bet thousands of dollars a hand, looking rich and square wouldn't be good enough. You'd need to look like a serious high roller. So she recruited some help. Yeah, if I have like a 40-year-old Asian man, no one's going to look at this guy and think immediately he's up to something. So they would bet, and I would read. I'd be the reader. Casinos still have sort of very old-fashioned, sexist, and racist ideas. I've said many times on my show, if you're Asian, it's worth at least an extra million dollars for your career just because of racism. This, in the world of advantage players, is called the big player, or BP for short. Whether you're counting cards or reading whole cards, the way to get a large amount of money down without attracting unwanted attention was to use another player to make the large bets, one who could handle the extra scrutiny of the casino because they're playing the part of a high roller or a degenerate gambler or simply someone with enough disposable income that betting $1,000 a hand or more wasn't out of the ordinary. Gina could read the card and discreetly signal to the BP what to do. This meant that Gina needed to recruit BPs, Not just one, but a lot of them. So she started working closer with her fellow Las Vegas whole card mafiosos. We'd go out for the night. We used to do this all the time. Like we'd hook up like maybe three or four of us and we weren't a team, but we'd for that night, all four of us would be on a chop. So we'd go out and we'd work, find a game here or there or whatever. And we'd meet at the pepper mill at the end of the night. We'd chop the bank. We're always in the pepper mill with like thousands of dollars on the table, just like chopping every night. Chopping the bank means they were splitting the money. And it was like, cool, we'd have like breakfast at like four in the morning after swing or five in the morning, we'd chop and then we'd do it all over the next night. I was like, I'm gonna fly to Reno. I heard there were games in Reno. Took some money, I flew to Reno by myself. And then I found a game at Circus Circus Reno. And you couldn't bet a lot. So I'm in Circus Reno and I see a game and I see a guy on the game trying to get the whole card. And he looks at me and he knows I'm looking at him like trying to get the whole card. So I sat down and then and then we played and then we talked after and he was also on BJ21. I mean, it was a very small like world or whatever. And so then we like just hooked up. We became partners. We started dating. It was like, yeah, two whole carders. And then him and I found a game in Tahoe at the Horizon. And we were just there every single weekend. It was a really good game. Table max, I remember, was like $200. So we bet two by $200 and and we were boyfriend and girlfriend. So we both bet our spots. I had this whole story that I was from the Valley because that's where I was living in Van Nuys. And 
My dad was into porn and that's why I had all this money and we took trips to Tahoe and we had this whole thing. And we made like 50K in a short amount of time. And so that pumped me back up. And also I got a lot of like experience. And then from there, it was just like, I just went up. I just got better. From Reno and Tahoe, she started following leads wherever they took her. And then we go to Puerto Rico, a United States territory where you do not have to declare your cash. That's the law. Like, you're fine. And we win there, right? So now we have like 100K on us and we're flying back to Vegas. So we're in the Puerto Rico airport and I just have a random bag search, like not a big deal. Like they, So this woman sees 30K, 35 was in my bag. It was in my carry-on. TSA. So she calls over like the manager and they bring me in a back room and they're like, where's this money from? We're like, well, we're gambling. And he said, don't be surprised if somebody stops you in Vegas to question you. Gina correctly pointed out to the TSA agent that Puerto Rico is still in the United States and it is legal to carry money within the U.S. They let her on the plane, but just to be safe, she called Bob Narcessian and told him to be ready in Vegas when they arrived. But before they could get to Las Vegas, the plane made a quick stop in Atlanta, Georgia. And somebody calls me by my name and I turn around and it's like a DEA agent and like his minions, like there's a couple of them and then they want to search me basically. And so then my partner walks up, he was like in the bathroom. And so they want to search our bags. Gina didn't panic. She'd been through worse than this. She told the officers that it was gambling money and she showed them her meticulous records of where she won every dollar. They're like, well, if we called the casino, could they confirm that? I'm like, yes. And so it didn't matter what I said. They were going to take our money. So, and they bring the dogs. Dog does nothing. Their dog got a hit. I'm like, the dog didn't move. The dog's falling asleep. And they've got the like undercover DEA agents, like with the backpacks, like acting like they're travelers, you know? So we're swarmed and they're holding our plane up. Like they're holding our plane to Vegas up and it's late and everyone's on the plane. They took every penny we had. We've had to put it in like plastic bags. They even took the change from her purse. They didn't even leave her with cab fare to get home. In all, the DEA took almost $97,000. They call it ill-gotten gains. They say this is drug money, and so we're confiscating it less. You can prove that it's not. That's Richard Munchkin again. So much for innocent until proven guilty. But the money goes to them, not them as individuals, but to that particular police department. But anyway, so yeah, this is a big problem and something that gamblers have to deal with a lot. Because you have to travel, you have to go around with a lot of money. You, a lot of you, that's right. You have to have cash. It is the tools of your business. The way a mechanic travels with his wrenches, you know, you need cash. I think they said that we didn't give our, our real names or we used aliases. They completely made something up. So Bob just stuck with it. And then a few months later, they said, well, if you take a lie detector test and you pass, you know, we'll give you your money back. I was like, no, no, like you can't free roll me. Like, that's my money. I'm not giving you it. No, like that's a no. So we said no. So then a couple more months go by and they say, okay, well, if you sign something that you won't sue, we'll give you your money back. It's like, no. And I, le- I kind of learned from the Ellis Island incident. There's some principle involved here. Like if, if you could take our money, you can do it to someone else. So maybe if we can like set a precedent, you can't do it to someone else. And I was very adamant, like, you're not going to get me like, no. So then finally, we got our money back. And so then we sued for stealing our money. You know, illegal search and seizure. The agent who took Gina's money was a local cop assigned to the DEA for drug arrests. It's my understanding that his agency 
uh, if the funds were forfeited, would indeed be able to keep a portion, possibly even the major portion of the funds seized. That's Bob Nersessian again. And Bob filed suit against the agent for Gina. They originally sued the DEA, but it turns out Gina couldn't sue the federal government, so they sued the individual agent. And the case got thrown out because they filed in Nevada instead of Georgia, where it happened. You can't sue where you want to. You have to sue where it's convenient for the defendant. Even though the defendant specifically waylaid you like highwaymen on your trip for the specific purpose of making it difficult for you to vindicate your rights. The case got appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and Gina won her appeal, giving her the right to sue in Nevada. So the agent appealed that, and the case eventually went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Now, it's important to remember, Bob's lawsuit had already got Gina her money back. But she didn't want to make the same mistake she made in Las Vegas when she got handcuffed at Ellis Island. This time, she wanted to take the fight all the way. Not for the money, but for the principal. She and other gamblers like her had been made to feel like criminals by casinos, by the government, and by their own friends and family for doing nothing wrong, for simply playing a card game well enough to make a lot of money. It irked Gina. She wanted to push back. She wanted to take a stand. In this instance, the argument was she had minimal contacts with Atlanta. In fact, all she was doing was getting on an airplane. She landed on an airplane from San Juan and was making a connection to Las Vegas. They knew she had the money. It's my position, and it's just to be borne out by the fact that the government specifically targeted her in Atlanta to take this money from her while she had no contacts there and no real ability to defend herself there in order to avoid taking the money in San Juan or in Las Vegas where she was headed. The whole idea was to use the inconvenience to the American citizen to the benefit of the government and the detriment of the American citizen. The problem was that the Supreme Court only heard the case because they wanted to reverse the Ninth Circuit. The ruling that Gina could sue the DEA agent in Nevada was going to upend decades of legal precedent. I think they wanted to do it because since the 1930s, the federal court had been adverse to um, nationwide jurisdiction in almost all circumstances, and they just wanted to make sure that that principle was affirmed. So, naturally, they lost at the Supreme Court. But Walden v. Fiore would become inscribed into legal history. Law students will be reading about Gina until the end of time. For someone who spent a lot of time trying to keep a low profile, Gina Fiore made a lot of waves. I didn't realize at the time, like, what a big deal it was. This is like a theme in my life. I don't realize that it's a big deal to be making all this money or that it's a big deal to be a professional gambler or that it's a big deal to go to the Supreme Court. Like, I don't realize it till after the fact. Like, you know, I've been all over the world I'm in, you know, Beijing, and I don't even realize how cool this is. Like, you're in Beijing, you know, or you're in Germany. I just didn't at the time realize that I should take advantage of... I was just like, oh, I'm in Germany, I'm tired, I'm going to go take a nap. Beijing, Germany, wherever there was a rumor about a good game, Gina would jump on a plane and go there. And wherever she went, she was bringing back more and more cash. It took over her life. 
Gina Fiore had gone from the little girl living in motel rooms in the Bronx to a jet-setting high roller in the blink of an eye. And the life of an international professional gambler was all-consuming. You know, if there's a game in Biloxi, and I know it's starting, you know, tomorrow, swing shift, and I'm in Vegas, like, I'll get on a plane and I will go. I just have to play. Like, I have to get there. And it's not like, like, the money is good. Like, you want to make the money, but... I don't know. I just, I was very driven. Very, very what driven. Was the, driven towards what? I mean, well, what was I wa- the goal? I wanted a lot of money. Like, I was like, I want $10 million. I'm going to get $10 million. And you must have been making a fortune. I was. I was making a lot of money. And like I said, like, I didn't realize that I was making more than like a doctor. Like, I just didn't realize. Even when I was at my six figure dealing job, like, I did not realize people would kill for this job, right? It just didn't hit me, I guess. Gina was 29 years old, and she was flush with cash. But for gamblers, money is just what you use to gamble. So she kept playing higher and higher limits. Eventually, she had so much, she had to spend some of it. She bought houses and cars for herself and her family. I mean, I had money. I wasn't investing it. I remember going, trying to invest it, like trying, I went to a CPA, and like I tried to get advice because I don't know what to do. And nobody gave me good advice. Like nobody said, hey, start an IRA. Like nobody said anything to me. So here I am with all this money. And then eventually you just got like hundreds of thousands of dollars in a checking account in a box. No, I know. Yeah. In a box. I just have cash. So there was just cash in boxes and I just didn't know what to do with it. And I remember my father who never had any money always used to say, if like, if you buy real estate, you'll never go wrong. Right. So now it's 2006. (laughs) And I just bought real estate. I bought like three high rises in Vegas. Like, how can I go wrong, right? You own a piece of the strip. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Two year no yields went from 190 to 166 in the blink of an eye. The NASDAQ, everything and more has been completely wiped out. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. The financial crisis of 2008 put Gina underwater in all of her investments. Now, it's been said that every professional gambler has to go broke once or twice in their life. But this was different. This wasn't supposed to be gambling. This was supposed to be her safe investment, her nest egg. Turns out, buying real estate was the only real gambling Gina had ever done. Wall Street was the casino, and they had all the edge. And she was better off when she was keeping all her money in a box. Now, not only do I have to work just to work, but now I feel like I got to make up for this money that I lost. Like, I got to get it back. And that's not a good mindset. Gina was determined to make the money back. So she put together a team, her own team. And they set out in search of dealers who gave up their whole cards. And they took them down for some huge scores. So I started my own team, Team Brown, because everyone calls me Miss Brown. So I started Team Brown. And by the height of it, like by 2010, we had like 12 members. And we were traveling, we had like a circuit we were doing and we were making a lot of money. So yeah, I put together a formal team from like 2008. Now, this wasn't something you usually saw. There weren't a lot of young women in their 20s running a 12-person international blackjack team. But Gina was a badass. She'd been taking care of herself her whole life. And she'd succeeded at everything she'd set out to do. It never occurred to her that maybe running a team, essentially a small business, with people more than twice her age, and having to trust a dozen people with hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash might be a lot of responsibility. 
It just seemed like what she had to do to get the money. I never ran a team like I'm the boss. Like it was never like that. It was always a democracy. It was always like, well, what do you want to do? I only had people on the team that I like to hang out with because you're on the road with them, you're flying with them, you're driving, you're sharing a room. And we were all from different walks of life, but we just had a good time and we made a lot of money, which makes it, you know, even better. Team Brown lived on the road, moving from score to score. And just like before, the money started rolling back in. For the better part of the next five years, Gina and her rotating band of teammates were scouting and taking down whole card games all over the world. They never had to worry about downswings because there was such a bonanza of spots to hit. America was going through a casino boom, with states looking to climb out of the recession by legalizing or expanding gambling to create some much-needed tax revenue. From 2008 to 2012, 10 new states introduced casino gambling, bringing the number of states with either commercial or tribal casinos to 30. And Gina's team hit them all. After putting in years of work, the losses from real estate didn't sting as bad as they had at first. Gina was still in action, which is everything to a gambler. And in the early 2010s, the serious action was no longer in the casino pits. It was in the poker rooms. And since making money at poker didn't require wigs and fake IDs and sneaking around like an international spy, poker seemed like an easier way to get the money. I used to play in a game, a semi-private game, a poker game in a casino, right? And so there's a lot of like successful people, a lot of businessmen and and just a lot of like, they weren't professionals. They were just like well-off, successful. The game was held in a special section of the poker room at the Aria. It was 100, 200, no limit hold'em. And at those stakes, players were gambling hundreds of thousands of dollars. How did you manage to get invited to a game like that? I mean, these people in this game were billionaires and like super powerful people. It was, there was a guy that played in the game that used to like, I would play like 5, 10, 10, 20 on the main floor. And there was a guy that would sit in 10, 20 while he was waiting for like the 100, 200, no limit game to start. And I used to just chat with him. And then one night I was like, yeah, get me a seat. Let me know when it's open. And I was just kidding. It's 100, 200, no limit. That night it was 100, 200, no limit, $50,000 buy-in. Okay. So this guy gets me a seat. He's like, yeah, your seat's open. And I was like, cool. And at this point, I had had a really big poker year before this. I had a really big poker year. And then it was the end of the World Series of Poker, like the series. And I made 100K during that series. So I'm pumped up, like I'm feeling good about my poker game. He's like, I got you a seat. Cool. He's like, I'll take 50%. Okay. 50K buy-in. So I had, he gave me 75. I had three buy-ins. I had 150 in my bag. You're saying he's taking half your action, which means he's half what you win, half, half what you lose. Yeah, he's got half of my action, which is normal. Like, it's not shady. It's just people sell their action, even if you're in the same game. Like, it's a big buy-in. Not everyone can just, I don't want to lose 150, you know? Like, that's a lot of freaking money. The whole reason Gina got to play in this massive game was there was another even more massive game going on that night in the room. A million-dollar buy-in game. So some of the regulars of this game had moved over to play in that one. And one of the rich fish at Gina's table was anxiously waiting for his seat in the million-dollar game to open up. About 40 minutes go by, and Gina works her 50K up to 80 when she gets a big hand. She's all in on the turn with a top pair, straight draw, and a flush draw. The rich fish turns over just a straight draw. So he had, like... Three outs, they had to be three clean outs, like one couldn't be a hard. 
So the river comes down and he says straight and I don't believe him. Like there's no way, right? So he turns over his garbage hand. He has a straight, I lose. So 150 is gone in like an hour and a half. And and then over time, I played in the game over a year. I played maybe like once or twice a month, maybe like 20 times. And the buy-in ranged from like 50 to 100K. And I ended up losing 500K in that game over like a year. But this was like a big shot. You were taking I was a taking shot. a shot because I was like, I can win a million in this game. And I could have won a million. Like that was a possibility. And I didn't. I lost a half a million. But I was in it because I thought, you know, I could shoot up. After a beat like that, it seemed as good a time as any to take a break, to find a distraction. And she found one right there in the poker room. So I had this downswing and I met this guy and I like completely fell in love. Like I was just, it was over. So it was a good time to take a break. So instead of concentrating on working, which I always had done, I started concentrating on him. And it was just him. And so we were like so into each other and it was like a honeymoon phase. Like we're really into each other. So he's a gambler too. He was playing poker at the time. Yeah. He came out here to play poker and he became successful. Like he did it. He played poker and he was a professional poker player. He doesn't play anymore. We knew we wanted to be together. We knew we wanted to have kids. So we did IVF. The end of 2014, like right around Christmas, I got pregnant. And that's all I did. And then nine months, I didn't work in a casino. And then I had a baby. And then my life just completely changed. Like, I don't value the same things that I did. Like, I like going on the play dates, surprisingly. Like, I like the other moms. And I like going to, you know, dance class. Like, I like doing all these little things. I really do. Like anyone who has a child can tell you, Gina's life changed dramatically. Staying home and not being able to work weighed heavy on her. And like anyone who has a child can also tell you, this new life tested her relationship. My ex was still playing poker and he was being the breadwinner. So then there was a stress of like, well, I'm out playing poker. Like you need to spend more time. Like you need to be the stay-at-home mom. And it's like, that's not the thing. That's not what's happening here. I just, that wasn't a good time. But now like you get into a routine and we went through a separation but once I was out of that, it was like I, like, I felt like I had quit my job at Agua Caliente. Like, I felt like I was free again, and I could be myself, and I could go back to myself. But even if Gina could get back out and work again, what would she do? Even if she could find another spot, another move, another score, it isn't like she could just pack up and hit the road and chase the money like she could before. Yeah, that, that is another big reason why people quit is nowadays, if you're a table games player, which Gina is a table games player, and you know we have to kind of distinguish that from these other forms of gambling. And really, to do that effectively, you have to kind of be on the road a lot. That's Richard Munchkin again. You know, once I had kids, I didn't want to be gone all the time while my kids were growing up. And you know, you, you're just constantly on the road living out of his suitcase. So that gets very old for people. So it causes a lot of them to get out of it. But Gina's not totally out of it. Today, Gina's son is four years old. She's trying to balance single motherhood and earning a living on her wits. And she's succeeding. She's still in action. But it's a lot different now than it was in the good old days. Now her action is mostly local. Her scores are less eye-popping. She's earning a comfortable living, one that most of us would be envious of. 
and she's earning every penny of it from gambling. But despite that, she can't help but feel like now and for the foreseeable future, she's on the sidelines warming the bench, earning the veteran's minimum. It's a lot different because I miss opportunities a lot. Like, I know where there are spots that I could go to today and make money, but I can't go. Like, I physically cannot go, and I'm okay with it. And also, I don't need to make all the money. Like, I'm okay not having $10 million. Like, I'm okay with it now because I have this child, and he's so awesome. And I still want to support myself and support him, And but I'm okay with, like, not, like, with missing the big spot. You'll settle for a million now. Mm-hmm. I still want to be really successful, but now I have to do it differently. But I can. Like, I was successful before. I will be just as successful now. I just have to, like, maneuver it differently. Maneuvering differently means Gina's had to teach herself new games and find new angles. She taught herself how to play slot machines for a profit, which is, believe it or not, a popular hustle among advantage gamblers today. She and I spent some time hitting some plus EV slots in Vegas, and she showed me how it was done. Well, you have to know which ones are valuable. Like, these are not valuable. But when you get to here, these are valuable. And, like, this machine I actually right. figured out on my own. Oh, yeah. I just walked by it, and I saw something moving. And I was like, oh, maybe. And then I sat down, and I just figured out. So now this is zero, so we're, like, done. So yeah. now we go to the next bet. We need another massive... Not a bad day's work. She's also betting sports from home. You can do uh, the Kings at plus 109. Which is a great one for her since she can do it from her house in Nevada, sitting in her living room with Legos and kid shit all around her. But the thing about this one, which I guess is the thing about all of Gina's moves, is that she didn't know anything about sports. She had to teach herself how it all worked. But just like blackjack or poker or anything else she's taken on, it didn't take her long to figure out where the edge was. In her first month of betting sports, she earned $30,000. It isn't Team Brown, but it's a start. She also started writing, detailing her past and present exploits on her website, rxgamble.com, which drew the attention of the gambling world's elder statesman. This year, Gina received an invitation to the hallowed Blackjack Ball. The Blackjack Ball was started 24 years ago by Max Rubin, a well-known and successful gambler who would throw a yearly party when all the card-counting teams in America descended on Las Vegas for New Year's Eve. Over the years, the event has evolved into an invitation-only gala for 100 of the top gamblers in the world. It is so exclusive, not only would Richard Munchkin, who now helps Rubin run the event, not allow me to attend, he wouldn't even tell me where it was being held. There is a lot of secrecy involved because Max is always... uh joke that if the casino industry could drop a Scud missile on this place when the party was going on, their lives would be a lot easier. But um, a lot of the people at the ball are no longer playing. You know, people like Ed Thorpe or Blair Hull, who, you know, ran against uh, Barack Obama for the Senate seat and sold his company to Goldman Sachs for $600 million. You know, there were a lot of people who got their start in card counting that then went on to make fortunes doing other things, so. The attendees are, it's like an invitation-only kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you, what is the criteria? How do you decide who to invite? Well, a lot of it is people who've been coming for years. Um, That's the vast majority of people. 
you know, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. It's, well, I, guess it, I mean, Max really is the final arbiter of who gets to come and who doesn't, right? So um, why does Gina get to come? Because she's been a known advantage player for 20 years and, you know, Max knows her and she knows a lot of the people there. And But that's kind of elite company to keep to be in a room of the hundred, I don't know, most successful or accomplished yeah, black yeah. players. Yeah, uh, well, she is a very successful, very accomplished player. Do you think you'll ever be one of those old-timers telling stories? I'm worried that I'm an old-timer now. Because when I started, I was playing with people who had been in the business 20 years. And now I've been in it, and I'm like, I might already be that person. I don't know. I have no idea what they think of me. I feel so young. I just don't feel, like, older. I just don't. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm an old timer. I, I don't know. After the ball, I called Gina to see how it went. So, like, what were you wearing? What were people wearing at this thing? Was it really oh, like a people, ball? Yeah, people get dressed up. I had like a black dress on and my heels, and I took a shower. No, it was it was nice. <laughs> people get dressed up. They put effort into it for sure. I'm just picturing in my mind, like, the movie Eyes Wide Shut, like, that this is some sort of, like, weird masquerade. Well, <laughs> it's kind of, like, opposite of that, because it's so cool, because you get people who, in the real world, won't tell you their real names, won't tell you what they do, but here, everyone's just completely free. For so much of Gina Fiore's life, she has disguised herself, changed her name, worn wigs and costumes, pretended to be someone she wasn't. After a while... It was hard to know who she really was. When she wasn't playing, when she wasn't battling the casinos at the tables, or the wealthy donkeys in the poker room, or the DEA and the United States government in the courtroom, who was Gina Fiore? I talked to people, like I talked to a guy tonight who I've known for a long time, and he was mentioning some of the stuff he's been doing like since we talked. And I'm like impressed, and I'm like, am I impressing anyone? Is anyone impressed? I don't know how I'm viewed. I'm curious, actually. No. What do you have? I would check. Have you played this game before? No. Oh, yeah, just check. And check. Oh, check. Yeah, I got nothing. I'm in a casino in Las Vegas, but I can't tell you which one. And I'm playing a game, but I can't tell you what it is. The woman I'm sitting with who's telling me how to play, she can see something nobody else in the casino can see. The dealer's whole card. But there's something else nobody else in the casino can see. And that's Gina Fiore. That's the tough thing about this life. I imagine it's no different than being a spy or like an international jewel thief. A life filled with adventure and intrigue and nobody ever gets to know. You can't talk about it. You can't brag about it. And that's by design. Getting the money requires being anonymous, invisible. And when you do something really impressive, Outside of the blackjack ball, at least, nobody celebrates you. That's the trade-off. You give up your identity. You get the money. Oh, look at that. I got something. I'm going to play. I beat her. Easy game. I don't know about you, but it seems like a pretty sweet deal to me. This season on Gamblers. 
We played for 76 straight hours. And when that 76th straight hour was up, I was up 86,000. It kind of made sense to me like right away, and I don't know how, but it just did. It was one of the most star-studded final tables. It was akin to watching a bloody UFC fight. Just thinking like, please let this end, you know? The emotional swings of both of it was just a lot. The Romans thought that dice were controlled by the gods. Sometimes I share their viewpoint. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show was produced by Craig Horlbeck, Noah Malale, and Isaac Lee. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. The sound design was done by Isaac Lee.